You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Dan Johnston, co-founder and CEO at Workstep, and also the co-founder of InstaEDU that was acquired by Czech. And this episode will mainly talk about this acquisition, how Dan raised money for InstaEDU, and how the whole thing happened. So Dan, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on InstaEDU. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, as far as my personal background goes, uh, my relevant experience actually starts when I managed a third-party warehouse in the Walmart supply chain, uh, which is when I became intimately familiar with the challenges that Workstep, my most recent company, set out to solve. Uh, for the background related to InstaEDU, uh, similarly, I was a tutor myself, uh, which led myself and my co-founder to found an in-person tutoring marketplace, uh, which we bootstrapped uh, and was eventually acquired, uh, at which point we set out to build something that was more scalable and something that could reach students anywhere in the country and eventually the world, uh, which is when InstaEDU was born. Uh, InstaEDU was an online on-demand tutoring company which we then raised venture funding for, scaled for a couple of years, uh, and then grew within Chegg, a larger public education company. Um, yeah, I suppose that's my professional background from 30,000 feet. Right now, I'm working on Workstep uh, with a fantastic team. What we do at Workstep is we help large industrial companies hire and retain their frontline workforce. Nice. Actually, that's a big issue that I've heard about a lot, retaining that workforce, especially in those, you know, front lines, people who actually do work. So it's really cool. I'm looking forward to hearing you know, more news about that company soon. Uh, but for now, let's focus on InstaEDU. Uh, so first thing that I want to ask you is you founded the company with your sister. Was that the issue for some investors? Because uh, from my personal experience, that might be a pretty big issue, founding a company with your relative. What, what about you? Do you see any you know, uh, traction there in terms of investors are like, ah, you know, not, not cool? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question. And it's definitely something that would always come up. I think that when you're talking to a prospective company as an investor, you tend to put yourself in their shoes. So what Every investor would say is something along the lines of, oh, I can't imagine founding a company with my brother or my sister mm -hmm. uh, because they sort of apply their own relationships there. Um, you know, the one thing that we always uh, made sure to make clear was that we were brother and sister, not uh, husband and wife, because some investors do uh, have a hesitance to invest in couples. Um, mm -hmm. For the very reason that if if things go south, of course, couples can become non-couples, um, sadly. Uh, the, the good news about brother and sister is that that relationship can't change, right? Somebody is your sister or your brother forever. And so uh, like a co-founder relationship, you sort of have to work through everything. And so uh, when we would have the opportunity to explain that 
aspect and that we had, you know, a lifetime of conflict resolution and teamwork skills built up. <laughs> uh, it ended up not, not being a challenge, at least not something that anybody explicitly said was an issue or a blocker for them. Nice. Yeah, that's actually a really great explanation. I think that that's the major reason why, you know, those uh, brother and sister or brother and brother or sister and sister founded companies are a bit undervalued, underestimated. So uh, nice work there presenting that you know, to the investors. And you've eventually raised $5.1 million for InstaEDU. How did you manage to raise the very first round? Where do you find the money for it? Yeah, you know, in hindsight, our initial round of funding for InstaEDU uh, was quite fortunate. Um, we had been bootstrapping InstaEDU or really funding the development of InstaEDU with some of the profit from our in-home tutoring business, but it was only going to get us so far. And when it came time to raise institutional funding, uh, we had a lot of challenges. I think, honestly, we probably got 20, 30 no's before we got our first yes from a sort of a lead institution perspective. Um, and that yes, of all things, was a direct professional connection of a advisor who I happened to actually tutor her kids. So our advisor... Uh, I was a tutor to her children, and she uh, knew a VC, Mamoon Hamid, at Social Capital, um, and uh, you know let him know what we were working on, and he invited us in to give a pitch and demo at Social Capital, which was a relatively new firm at the time, and just immediately got it. Um, our sort of live demo went particularly well that day and um you know from there the rest of the process worked out quite nicely but it was definitely a long road to get to that first yes right nice that's exactly the regular advice that everyone's giving to early stage founders you know try to look at your network um so good work there good work um so did you raise your whole round from just social capital or was there someone else who participated oh you're making me go way back in the memory archives now this was back <laughs> in this was back in let's see spring of 2012 um if i recall correctly we raised 1.1 million in total and i believe seven or eight hundred thousand of that was from the lead social capital and the rest was from, you know, ten to fifty thousand dollars smaller checks. Um, although the exact breakdown at this point, I don't think I recall. Mm -hmm. Guys, so those small checks are the major question that I get asked a lot by the founders. So how do I find those, you know, small investors who might be able to, you know, fulfill the rest of the round? How do I get in touch with those people? Because those are usually angels. So in your case, how do you reach out to them? Yeah. So, you know, again, it, it really is that standard advice, which is, you know, uh, understanding sort of who does activity in the specific space that you're building uh, or who invests in these sort of early stage angel, angel and seed rounds and then trying to build, you know, first or second degree connections to get to them. 
Um, so, you know, some of the folks who invested were people who uh, my co-founder or I had worked with in the past mm-hmm. and who did some angel investing. Um, some of the folks were, I believe, referrals from other people who were investing. You know, we had worked with somebody who participated and then told their friend or coworker or partner who then also participated. Um, and so it, it is just this sort of like um, networking based approach where you sell one person and then see who they know and then see if you can sell you know, the mission and the vision to that next person to the point where you can sort of fill out whatever tranche of capital you need to get to the next stage. Right. Yeah. The, the network event, I mean, the network chain there is pretty useful in that case. So I feel like you really like going back in your memory and recalling things that happened like eight years ago. So let's go there at the very beginning of InstaEDU. If you could go back in time to the very, very beginning and change something, what would it be? Would it be like the amount of capital you raised for a very first round? Would it be the way that you raised the money or the way you build a business? Or what, what would that thing be? Oh man, that's a that's an interesting question and one that I wasn't prepared for and one that I honestly try not to try not to think about uh, as much. You know, I think that <laughs> especially in light of everything that's happened over the last six months, um, perhaps what I would go back and tell myself in 2014, which is when we sold the business to Chegg for what was a positive outcome for both our team and our investors at the time is that digital learning is going to be really big and that it might take some time, um, but providing the top tier digital equivalent to what is a very, very, very large in-person industry, which is private tutoring, will have sort of massive opportunity in the years and decades to come And if you already are the leader, you can compound your advantages. So I'd probably tell myself, this is going to be really, really big. And maybe you should just keep going. That's a really good advice to yourself because it is really big right now and it's growing really fast, especially now that many people are asking themselves, like, do I even want to pay for that damn college if if I still stay at home? Uh, So that's... That's great advice, but still great outcome. So good work there. And let's talk about that. Uh, actually, before going to the actual acquisition, let's talk about your fundraising process. So you bootstrapped the first part. When was the moment when you were like, okay, now it's time for me to go out to investors and actually raise some additional money to boost this growth or to build this uh, product? When was that moment when you decided that you know I need money now? Yeah, you know, I think as soon as we landed on this concept of being an on-demand digital video-based tutoring platform. We knew that to build the layers of technology to support this use case and also acquire a large enough user base to make the network effects work. Uh, For example, you can't deliver on-demand online tutoring if you only have 10 students because you won't have the 
uh, incentive structure for tutors to be available 24-7. So you needed some amount of scale to make this work. And so that was the scale component and the technology component were both requirements of validating the thesis. So given our thesis, we knew that we needed you know, traditional venture to tease out whether that thesis was correct or not. And so at that point, it just became a question of how far along can we get prior to going out to raise capital to show that, A, I suppose we're competent, and B, this can be done. Um, and so it was never a question of if, it was just a question of when and sort of how long we could survive without capital to sort of prove out what we felt we needed to prove out in order to get that sort of first injection of institutional funding. Mm-hmm. Right. Nice. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, perfect answer. So now uh, we discussed the first part. Let's discuss the kind of final part, which is the acquisition of InstaEDU by Chag. How did this happen? How did you get in touch with Chag, or how did they get in touch with you? How did this happen? So the Chag acquisition was something that happened very slowly, I would say, at first, and then very quickly toward the end. And what I mean by that is we actually had been sort of friends of theirs or sort of in contact with Chegg for at least a year prior to the acquisition. And we had been formerly partners with them for at least, I would say, six or nine months. And the way that was structured was actually we were looking to grow our reach in terms of you know the total mostly US based student base and they were trying to capture you know more opportunities for revenue from the massive traffic that they have in terms of both book renters and folks using their digital study solutions and so we were one of their primary advertisers throughout their platform so you might be on a check property consuming some sort of piece of content and you would see a widget on the side, just like any other uh, digital advertisement that would say, you know, do you need online computer science tutoring? If you're looking at computer science, you know, click here to get help now. And that partnership was a great growth opportunity for us, but also it was in hindsight an eye op opening opportunity for them to see just how engaged their users were with our value propositions and just how much traffic they were sending our way, uh, which made them you know, realize potentially sort of how complementary these two products could be together uh, based on the way that their users were already interacting with our tools uh as they sort of pointed them to us as an advertising partner mm -hmm. right that's actually this most standard way of acquiring companies you know starting with some sort of partnership starting with some sort of collaboration so great story there um but let's move on and let's talk about your current work your current you know uh, activities in terms of other startups so i know that a lot of founders who have exited they start doing uh, you know, uh, mentorship for other startups. They start doing angel investors investments. Do you do any of those? Uh, I do. It's something that I wish I had more time for specifically on the mentorship side 
of course, I've been lucky enough to be mentored by some phenomenal founders. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that that Silicon Valley and really the startup ecosystem as a whole has this way of paying it forward where people further along in their career will be more than happy to jump on a call or have a conversation with somebody who is, you know, just getting started or, or sort of trying to maybe take some similar steps that they've taken before. Um, so definitely anytime a, uh, you know, a founder, uh, reaches out and I can be helpful in any way I try to do so because so many amazing founders have done the same for me in the past. Um, and then I do do some angel investing, um, not at a crazy high volume, uh, maybe, you know, a handful, a few investments a year, um, mostly from my personal, personal network. Um, and the only reason I don't do more of that um, is really just that I, I spend so much of my time and thought cycles dedicated to scaling uh, Workstep, uh, which is our current company. Um, so that that is obviously uh, a very consuming, all-consuming endeavor at, on its own. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely, and that's completely understandable. And that uh, you know, paying forward mentality is. A really great thing that I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs don't really take advantage of. I mean, you can literally find people you like on LinkedIn, just cold email them, cold LinkedIn them, asking for some advice, you know, for some mentorship on your progress. Maybe you don't even have a company at the time, but you want to have one. They're still going to help. The chances are super high that they will help. Uh, so definitely do that. That's, that's a great recommendation here. And let's talk more about those early stage entrepreneurs, specifically in the educational field. I mean, now that the coronavirus hit, more and more uh, online educational platforms, online educational related startups are popping up. What's your advice to those people who think of starting something in this field right now and who are just, you know, hesitant or maybe just just bumping this idea around in their head. What's your advice to those people? Yeah, you know, my advice to, uh, I would say, like the earliest stage of founders or potential founders is almost always the same, which is if you're really serious about this, the fastest way to separate yourself from the field is to take the leap and make sure that you actually do it. Um, and what I mean by that is there are a lot of people who talk about ideas and talk about products and talk about companies or opportunities, um, but who never get past talking about it or writing about it. And what I sort of mean by that specifically is what I always tell people is if you really want to do this, incorporate a company and take a step so that you would have to explicitly fail because <laughs> what that does is it totally changes your mental model from the default being just sort of allowing your excitement to peter out over time to the default being you either have to move forward and make this work or sort of deliberately wave a white flag and say this is not going to work. You can't just sort of let it fizzle. And it really, it really is an empowering step and something that can create a lot of sort of downstream momentum um, and something that, you know, in our case, we had, we had incorporated a company 
maybe two years prior to do an idea that was never that was never going to work. It was like a uh, you know, it was like a social platform idea about video chat. This is like 2010, and it was a it was just a bad idea. We had no idea how to do the uh, work. We had no idea how to build a social platform. But that's you know what everybody was doing back then. Um, but when that business never took off because we never built it, um, we were sitting there and you know we we figured well let's you know we have this corporate entity let's let's do something so we you know we started an in-home tutoring agency like very low tech uh, and then that led to NCDU which led to Chegg which led to work so you never know what's going to happen if you just sort of take the leap and, and say you know what I'm going to build a company and I think this is what I'm going to build but I'm open to being flexible um, so that's my big advice to the early stage founders is if you're serious about it take a step that can't be undone um, and then, then you'll sort of have that forcing function to keep pressing on when things get hard. Absolutely. And that's great advice, you know, just to take any kind of step, just to see the progress starting. Uh, my personal advice would be not incorporating at that point because it's just, you know, some extra work, maybe at some point it's unnecessary. So my personal advice would be actually try and go find some customers. I mean, if you have pretty much zero type besides, you know, really shitty website, still try and do that. Just see what people say. And only then, if you see some progress, then go on and incorporate. Um, but let's talk more about fundraising for those early stage entrepreneurs because, you know, it's there and it's fundraising radio. Uh, so what's your advice to those people who decide to take that step, who see some sort of traction? Where should they go to fundraise? Do you have any specific, you know, loopholes maybe for someone who, uh, as someone who has already gone through the process, do you have any specific advice to those who are just beginning in this field? No, I don't think there are any loopholes to the process. Uh, what I would say is that, like any part of your business, you need to have a very clear strategy. And that strategy needs to be based on both research and reality. And so what I, what I sort of mean by that is that, one, you want to understand exactly what you want and why. Uh, and that really starts with understanding your long-term vision for the company and also um, coming to a view around you know, what sort of milestones you would need to hit to get to the next level and then modeling out what sort of capital is required. Once you know what you need and why, you can start to sort of um, slice the investor universe based on who sort of works within that space, within your sector, has done deals at that stage in your industry or you know, in your region or in your problem space. And then once you have that list of, let's say, 20 individual investors who do investment activity at this scale that would be the perfect fit for you to solve that next challenge and get to the next level of scale. Now you're at sort of like a, a sales funnel, which is you have 20 leads. You need to figure out how to get from lead to opportunity, i.e. how to get to a meeting. And then once you get to a meeting, you know, how do you move from meeting to close? Um, so whether you want to think of it as a, a consumer acquisition funnel or a sales acquisition funnel, it's basically the same concept. Um, but I think the part that a lot of people skip is they skip that, that research and segmentation phase and they just start sort of spraying around. Um, and that, that sort of leads to a very, very, very low hit rate and a lot of frustration. 
So that, you know, that would be my advice is do the homework up front to create a relatively short list and then go diligently one by one working sort of each opportunity to conclusion. And if you go over 20, that's fine. You tee up the next 20 with the same process and you do it all over again. Right, right. Yeah, actually, adding up a little bit, that's perfect advice, you know, creating those lists, making like really good research, find some icebreakers there. What other advice I've heard on that topic is you have to create like a bigger list, like 100, 150 people, highly qualified people. And those people then reach out to them all at once, pretty much in like one week to create some buzz, you know, so that's once you meet with an investor, once you jump on the call with them, you're like, oh, I just spoke to that firm. I've heard their concerns. They had similar concerns to yours. We're definitely going to address that. And the investor feels like, you know, oh, maybe I should actually rush this one because if, if I will not be fast, then someone else will be. So this creates you know, a sense of urgency for them. So definitely try that. If you don't have enough time, start with 20. That's at least something. Um, so we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. What's the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Oh, man. Uh, that's also a tough question. Uh, you know, I think that from an entrepreneur's perspective, the most impactful thing when it comes to fundraising, also company building, is generating a very clear idea of where you want to be in five years, where you want to be in one year, where you want to be in six months, and where you want to be in three months. And if in three months you want to be raising a seed round, start to understand, flesh out what that story is that would be compelling at that time. You know, like what is that seed deck? What is that series A deck? And start to actually potentially even literally build it out. And then once you understand if that narrative is compelling, you can set out to go build that narrative. Um, and so if you figure out the story that you want to be telling in the future, you can work backwards to the most important things to work on today. Uh, but if you sort of fail to take that view, you can end up doing a lot of things that end up building a relatively non-compelling narrative. Um, and so what I would do is I would go and I would write down the story that you want you or your company to be telling, pick a milestone in the future, three months from now, one year from now, five years from now, and then work backwards to what does that story mean that I would be doing today? And normally that helps clarify prioritization. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Milestones are the key. That's perfect advice. And definitely, definitely work on your milestones. And my personal call to action, as usually, is go to the description of this episode. I'll leave the link to Workstep uh, in the description so that you can check out the company itself. And also, I will leave another link to the episode about an acquisition of School Mint by K-12, I believe. So it was a pretty big acquisition in the educational field as well. So if you want to learn how, how those things work more deeply, that's the episode for you. And have a good day, everyone.